Okay, good morning, everyone. Shabbat Shalom. We're going to go ahead and get started. Let's open up in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you today. We just want to thank you for this beautiful Shabbat you've given us. We want to thank you for another week, for this celebration that we've had this week of the independence of our nation, for blessing us to live in this country, and Father, for all the blessings that you poured out upon us, especially the blessing of knowing our Messiah, Yeshua. Be with us today. Help us, Father, to focus in on you. And I pray, Father, that you will help me to communicate your heart of this message. In Yeshua's mighty name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Some of you may recognize this title. I actually did a teaching on this a few weeks ago. It was one of those mornings we had all kinds of things going on, all kind of technical challenges. First, we were 20 minutes late starting which meant I had to cut a lot of stuff out of my lesson. Then we had challenges with the video booth, found out later that it did not even go out on our website. The only way we were able to live stream it was through Facebook, and the first half of the lesson had no sound. So guess what? I get a redo. We'd like to get this out there so that our online audience could you know, listen to it as well. Also, even if you were in the class that day, I want to tell you, I did have to cut out a lot, so that is back in. Plus, I've taken it and actually separated it. Judy gave me, told me it sounded like it had a part two to it. So I've actually divided that lesson and made two separate lessons, so I've added a lot of new material. So even if you were here that morning, this will be different. There'll be some things you'll recognize, some things you will not. So appreciate you bearing with me on that. As disciples of Yeshua, there's something we need to do. All disciples in the ancient times were to become like their rabbi. Our rabbi is Yeshua. So our goal should be to become more and more like Yeshua each and every day. But in order to be like Yeshua, we have to know what Yeshua was like. And that means putting him back in his proper context. That means understanding the culture and traditions of his day. Because when we try to interpret his words in light of modern culture, a lot of times it comes out very differently. And so those questions of what his culture and his traditions were are kind of difficult for our modern Western society to answer. Because it's so different from that Middle Eastern culture that Yeshua was raised in. Most of us actually grew up in the Christian church. And while the Christian church did a lot of things right, it had a major misstep when it's separated from Judaism. That separation makes it very, very difficult for us today to really understand the culture of Yeshua. And it actually has led to us really, and I just lost my notes. They just vanished off my screen. Okay, there we go. Uh, it, it's a, caused us to kind of step away, and a lot of times we don't even think about the fact that he was Jewish. Be honest with yourselves. Don't you sometimes just think about him as a Gentile and don't even nothing more than a passing glance to his Judaism. Unfortunately, that has led to some major theological errors because we have all been guilty of doing that. And at its worst, it has even led to outright anti-Semitism. So even though many believers never give it a serious thought, the truth is that Yeshua was Jewish and Judaism was a major and very important part of his life. That separation of our faith from Judaism has resulted in his followers not truly understanding who he is, what he was like, 
and being able to correctly interpret his words as they're recorded in our Bibles. And I'd like to share with you my story as an example. Some of you know I was raised in the Southern Baptist Church. I went to church faithfully. I attended vacation Bible school every summer. And then each summer, our family would also visit from church to church during revival time. So we were constantly in church. It was something that was a very important part of my life. I accepted the Lord at the age of 12, and except for a very brief season, uh, about two or three years, when I was in my late 30s, early 40s, and walked away from God because my whole life got turned upside down, and I began to think God hated me, which was not true. But other than that short period of time, my faith has always played a very, very important part in my life. And after I accepted Yeshua at the age of 12, I began to read the Bible for myself. I began to question a few things, such as why the Bible directed the people to rest on the seventh day. Hmm. Rather than Sunday, which was the day I was accustomed to going to church. That's what I'd always been taught. Then one day, I was sitting reading my Bible, sitting on my bed, and I ran across the passage where God com was commanding the people to keep the feast in perpetuity for all their generations. And I still remember sitting back and saying out loud, but I don't even know what those feasts are. Then there's all these strange names. We had ethnic names such as Alphaeus, Zebedee, Ananias. And don't even get me started about the names in the Old Testament. <laughs> Some of those, this long. But when we read about the disciples, we see that most of the disciples had more modern, common names like James, Timothy, Philip, Peter. John. It just didn't seem to add up. It seemed like something was missing. But being that good little Christian girl I was, I didn't rock the boat and start asking a bunch of questions. I didn't go to my Sunday school teacher, my pastor, or even my parents and say, what's going on here? I just sat back and thought and kept it in the back of my mind. I didn't know it at the time, but God was preparing me for a change, and it would be more than 30 years later before that change would occur. And something else that I had tucked away in the back of my mind, and this one was pretty interesting. My dad used to have a gas station. It was down in the Roswell, Wyuka area, for those who are familiar with that area. Uh, it was on Roswell Road. It was, there's a Zaxby sitting there right now on the exact same lot where my dad's station was. And there's a McDonald's next to it. In fact, I remember when they built that McDonald's. <laughs> oh, we had the station then. And we're really excited to have food right next door. We just walk next door and pick up our lunch when we were down there during the summer. Because my brother and I spent a lot of time at that station. We pretty much grew up there. But I vividly remember going up and down Roswell Road because we lived out in the coming area. And that was our trek. That was before 400 opened. And it was our trek to get back and forth to the station was up and down Roswell Road. Going home one evening, going up through Roswell Road up in the Sandy Springs area, and I see a sign on one of the off-roads. There's a gas station sitting there on a road next to it, and there's a sign out there that's advertising a congregation of the Hebrew Christian Alliance that was meeting somewhere down that road. And I, for some reason, that phrase, Hebrew Christian, really jumped out at me. Now, even at my young age, I realized that that meant that they were Jewish people that believed in Jesus, but I didn't know why they would be any different than anyone else who believed in Jesus. So. No internet, no way to research it at that time. Again, I kept it in the back of my mind, didn't start rocking the boat, asking questions. 
So I left that curiosity unfulfilled. Now, many, many years later, I finally found out the mystery there. The Hebrew Christian Alliance of America was founded in 1915. This organization later changed its name to something you may recognize, the Messianic Jewish Alliance of America, the MJAA. That name change occurred in 1975. So that tells you how many years ago it was when I saw that sign. So I'm kind of dating myself a little bit on this one. <laughs> but I remained a member of the Southern Baptist Church until my early 20s when I actually moved out of the house and moved into an apartment with a roommate. Our next door neighbors happened to be going to a non-denominational church in Stone Mountain. It was a new church that had only been around a couple of years. I went there with them for a couple of years. Then from there, I went to the Assembly of God. Then I went back to another denominational, non-denominational church for a few more years and just kept bouncing around. And throughout all of this, I kept wondering what my purpose was. I would ask God what he wanted me to do. I knew he had a plan for me, but I just couldn't seem to figure out what it was. I'd see other people. They seemed to know what God wanted them to do, but I didn't. There was this restlessness. There was this unanswered question. I just couldn't seem to get an answer to it. And it was later when my life was turned upside down, as I said earlier, that I allowed the enemy to convince me that God had deserted me. So I walked away for a season. And it was during that dark time of my life that God, as faithful as he is, brought Steve into my life. And that's when I began to realize that God really did love me. And that's when my search really began. Now, when Steve and I first married, you have to realize he was traveling a lot. He was out of town weekends, during the week. It was just in and out, in and out, in and out. And I'm not sure he realizes how many churches I actually visited of various denominations on those weekends when he was gone, trying to find something. I knew something was missing. I knew I had not found the right place yet. I just didn't know where to go. Presbyterian PCA. United Methodists, other non-denominational churches, Church of God, Vineyard, you name it. If you can think of it, I probably tried it at least once. But I would occasionally find one that I thought, okay, I found this mysterious it. Still didn't know what this it was, but I would think I'd found it. I'd settle down. A few months later, I'd start getting restless and realize that's not it. Move on. And not only would I become restless, but I also found I really never fit in anywhere. I just like, I never really meshed. The people never really accepted me for some reason. I always felt like I was an outsider looking in. And as the old saying goes, hindsight's 2020. I now understand why God never let me feel comfortable in any of those settings. Because that was not what he had in mind for me. He had something else and he was preparing me. And had I felt comfortable at any of those churches, I, went, I can tell you I would never have become a part of the Messianic movement because I would have stayed right where I was because I would have been comfortable. Several times during those searching years, I thought back to my exposure to a Messianic congregation that I had visited in the mid-80s for a concert by the group Lamb. I was intrigued, but I was hesitant to go there. I was not Jewish and did not really know if I would have fit in there, so I continued searching within, within Christianity for this mysterious it. Things began to change for me, though, in late 2002. Picked up uh, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and there was an article in there about a new congregation that had been started called Beth Adonai. And it was only 15 minutes from my house uh, at the time. We're meeting out here at what used to be Pleasantdale Church of God, 
And as I was reading the article, I very clearly heard God speak to me. And he said, that is where I want you to go. Now, he would think that someone who had been looking for answers since she was 12 and been on this search and had gone to so many different places would immediately jump to it and say yes and go. I was working very, very long. We were meeting at that time on Friday evenings. I was working very, very long hours. I was going to college at night. And then there was Steve's schedule in and out, in and out. And it was, it was a few months, about two or three months, before I actually had a free Friday evening and was able to go. People were very nice. They were very welcoming. But the first thing I noticed was it was a relatively small congregation. I'm in school really was not where I could get in and get involved. So I really wanted to go somewhere where I could just kind of go in and fill a seat and not be noticed. Ever been there? <laughs> that wasn't it. I knew that. So it did, ha did give me enough confidence, though. I went back to that congregation I had visited in the mid-'80s. It was a bit larger. But guess what? My plan of hiding there didn't work either. After about the second or third time, the rabbi came up and introduced himself. Let me know. He had seen me the first time I came in. I'm like, okay, there's no hiding here either. In the meantime, a lady that I had met at Beth Adonai called me and said, you know, we haven't seen you in a while. We'd love for you to come back. So I came back. By that time, we had bought this building, so we're meeting right here on this site. And when I came back, I realized that this was where God wanted me. In school or not in school, this was where he wanted me, so that's where I've been ever since. And in coming here, that big question of this mysterious it that I was searching for all those years was answered. And it's very simple. I've said all this to tell you that the foundation of our faith is the Torah. Without it, nothing else in the scripture makes complete sense. If you try to interpret it without the Torah, you're going to most likely reach a wrong conclusion. Once I had that filled in, that restlessness stopped. And I began to grow. I began to really learn about Yeshua. And one thing I learned was, he was I'd always heard his name Jesus. But I learned that when he walked on this earth, he was known as Yeshua. He was called by that by his family, by his friends, his disciples, everyone. And that name means salvation. And there's nothing wrong with that name. Jesus, it just came about through a series of translations from one language to another, and it is not the name he was known by during his lifetime. And I prefer to call him Yeshua, because that's the name he was called, and it's a name that I've come to love because it truly represents what he is, salvation. So when I hear that name, it automatically connects with salvation. And as I said, all that restlessness was gone, and as I studied God's word and put Yeshua and his word back in its proper context of Judaism, I began to have total peace. The scriptures began, began to come alive. The people that I was reading about were no longer just names from ancient history. They were living, breathing people. I began to feel as if I even knew them in some respect. Now, some of you have probably heard parts of this story before, but I wanted to go back over it because my experience is pretty common, actually. Some, some differences, but the overall experience is similar. If I were to ask the Gentiles in this congregation why you are here, you would probably have something pretty similar. You're probably looking for something more 
than what you were getting in your local church. And that's why you came here. You knew something was missing. You just didn't know what it was. And so many people realize that, but guess what? We're creatures of habit. We like comfort. As I said, had I been comfortable, I wouldn't be here today. And so many people are so comfortable, they know something's missing, but they never go out on that search to try to find what's missing. The loss of Yeshua's Jewishness in our faith and the separation of our faith from Judaism has created a void. And most people, as I said, go through life with that void, never finding what they're missing. In fact, there's some people that will actually fight against it. I remember one lady who used to attend here years ago. She uh, joined here, became a member, but she kept her membership up at her Sunday church because she was one of their Sunday school teachers. And she felt like that was her call, was to take what she was learning here and try to teach it to the people in her Sunday school class. And she was amazed at some of the resistance and at times even hostility that she faced. And one instance, which is pretty interesting, is there was a man in there one morning she said something about Jesus, as she call, you know, called him in, in the church, being Jewish. And this one man, he was not Jewish. And he was determined that Yeshua was not Jewish. And she and I never did figure out what Bible he was reading. But it, it, it's that extreme sometimes. And this all brings me to my topic this morning, which is the Jewishness of Yeshua. Because he was Jewish, he is Jewish, and he will forevermore be Jewish, no matter how much some people try to ignore that fact. And when we lose sight of that, we lose a very rich heritage. And as I said earlier, we misinterpret the scriptures in some respects. So I want to start out with a disclaimer here. I am not trying to convince any Gentiles to become Jewish. Okay, I talked about that at length um, last year when I taught on Acts 15 in the Jerusalem Council. Paul told us we are to remain as we were. If we're Gentile, we're Gentile. If we're Jewish, we're Jewish. But we do need to understand the laws and the traditions of Judaism because our scriptures need to be interpreted with those in mind because that's the audience to whom they were written. And I do have a few resources I want to mention quickly because there's some really good ones. One is FFOZ publication by Jacob Franzak that's called Yeshua Matters, putting the Jewish rabbi back at the center of Christianity. And the author's introduction in the beginning of this book reminds me a lot of my search, and it confirms that many of us go through similar experiences. And I won't go in detail on his search in case you want to read the book. Don't. Jacob Franzak is F-R-O-N-C-Z-A-K. And it's the first fruits of Zion publication. This author felt like something was missing. And he found what was missing in Messianic Judaism. And it really transformed the way he looked at scripture. The second one is by an author that most of us in the Messianic movement know. Hopefully all of us, but definitely the majority. Dr. Michael L. Brown. And it's called The Real Kosher Jesus. Revealing the Mysteries of the Hidden Messiah. This book is actually a rebuttal of a book that was written by a Jewish rabbi that was called The Kosher Jesus. And he was, that author had written his book for a Jewish audience, trying to convince them that Jesus was Jewish, but he completely missed the mark when it came to the Messiah. And Dr. Brown, who's friends with the author of that book, um, re rebutted him very respectfully in a very loving way, as he always does. But 
this author in the other book actually tried to paint Paul as the bad guy. He tried to take, instead of Yeshua being the bad guy, it was Paul. Paul's the one who started the new religion, according to him. And Dr. Brown tackles that subject head on. So I, if you haven't read that book, I would strongly recommend it. It's a great, great teaching. And here's one that I did, had not read the last time I did this lesson, so I've got a lot of new information from here. This one is really good. It's, uh, it was released, I think, at the end of last year or the first of this year, so it's really hot, so it's hot off the press. It's called The Lion of Judah, How Jesus Completes Biblical Judaism and Why Judaism and Christianity, Christianity Separated. It's a mouthful of a title. But it's by Rabbi Kurt A. Schneider, which you may recognize. He has a television program called The Jewish Jesus. This one covers a lot of material. It's not a real big book. It's a quick, easy read. But it's amazing how much he has compacted into this book. Now, it's all at a very high level. But if you've never studied about how this whole separation occurred uh, with the Jewish people that didn't believe, the Jewish people that believed, and then the Gentile believers, he gives you a really good high-level oversight of what happened there. So it's a really good, good starting place if you've never done that research. And even if you have, you may learn some things from this book. He, he really did a good job of compacting it. And he teaches how rabbinic Judaism in there was born, so you understand why the ancient Judaism versus the modern rabbinic Judaism, and also why Yeshua's Jewishness should matter to each and every person who follows him. It's that important. And for those of you who just really are not into the nonfiction and you prefer fiction, a couple of suggestions here by Ron Cantor. I am not really a fiction uh, book person myself. I'm more of a, a geek when it comes to reading books. But I really enjoyed these two. He's, he, Ron is writing a trilogy. He's only completed the first two, so that's the negative here on it. If you read these two, you're going to want the third one. It's not out yet. I don't know when it will be out. He hasn't announced that. But the first one is called Identity Theft, and the second one is called The Jerusalem Secret. And they're built on solid biblical principles, even though the characters are fiction. It's set in modern times, and I won't, give, I won't give everything away in case you want to read it, but the guy gets taken back by an angel to see different things in history and sees how Yeshua's Jewishness was stripped from him, what it resulted in, and it totally transforms the man's life. So let's get back to our topic now. It's possible that you, as so many other people, have struggled with how to relate to Yeshua and how to be a true disciple. But until we understand him and his culture, it's difficult to really understand what being a disciple is all about. That's when we can become confused and start wondering where our purpose in life is, like I did. Only when we get a good grasp of who he is, and that includes his Jewishness, you can't escape it, can we become his disciples in the true sense of the word. And when we learn how to become his disciples, it helps us to understand his purpose and plan for our lives. A major part of his plan for each of us is to obey his commandments. And that sounds simple on the surface, but since many of us came out of the Christian church, we were most, lost, most likely taught that Yeshua fulfilled the law, and thus it is no longer necessary to keep God's commandments. Has anybody ever heard that one? Thus, there may be confusion whether we need to keep the commands, and if we do, which ones? 
We have scriptures in the Brit Hadashah, the New Testament, such as 2 Timothy 3.16, that give us an answer. That one says, all scripture is God-breathed and valuable for teaching the truth, convicting of sin, correcting faults, and training in right living. Now remember, when that was written, the only scripture that existed was the scrolls of the Torah and of the t prophets and the poetry books. In other words, the Tanakh. If Yeshua fulfilled those and we no longer have to keep what they say, how could those words teach us about right living as that verse tells us? It, it doesn't make sense, okay? Then we have another one. Scripture, it should always be at least two. You should have at least one witness along with the original. And we have more than that, but we're only going to talk about these two. We'll talk about 2 Timothy, and we're going to talk about Romans 15, 4, because that bears uh, witness to the passage from 2 Timothy. That says, for everything written in the past was written to teach us so that with the encouragement of the Tanakh, we might patiently hold on to our hope. So if these passages are correct and God's word cannot lie, then how can we justify taking the position that Yeshua had tossed aside the law, the Torah, the foundation of our faith, the Tanakh or Old Testament, whichever term you prefer? Following his word allows us to live in right relationship with him. But sadly, a lot of people believe that we no longer have to keep those commandments. And with some... Sadly, even going so far as to say that it grieves God's heart when we try. Have you ever heard that one? Some of the most extreme teachers actually say that. False teaching such as this is why we have so many different interpretations of what the Bible says. But when we realize that Yeshua was Jewish, he kept the feasts, he adhered to Torah, our relationship with the Lord grows stronger and the scriptures actually become alive. I remember when I first came here, as I told you a few moments ago, that Bible transition from being simply words on a page in a book to being a rich and meaningful book that included stories of real people and real situations that had a profound impact on my life. The people I had read about all my life suddenly became living, breathing people that I began to feel I knew personally. It transformed the way I looked at scripture and the way I looked at my savior. For the first time in my life, I actually felt like I knew him instead of just knowing about him. And as I said earlier, the rea reality is this. Yeshua was Jewish. He is Jewish. And he will return as a Jew. And we're going to talk about all those different facets this morning. He kept the commandments of the Torah. He taught his Talmudim, his disciples, to do likewise. Contrary to some people who want to argue and say he told them not to keep. He did teach them to keep. After his death and his resurrection, the early church continued to follow Judaism, despite what you may have been taught. Does that surprise anybody? It wasn't until the Gentiles began to come into the faith in large numbers which began with Cornelius in Acts chapter 15, that things started to change. History tells us that the vast majority of believers, both Jewish and Gentile, continued to keep the feasts and follow the Torah for several centuries after Yeshua's resurrection. We're never taught that. 
were taught that they started a new religion right there in the first century. Not true. The big cutoff was in the fourth century under Constantine when he declared Christianity, Christianity to be the official state religion and he forced everyone to become a Christian. That's when things began to radically change. Constantine made it illegal to practice Judaism. It was illegal to celebrate the feasts such as Passover. And instead, he required that people keep man-made holidays such as Easter, for example. Everyone, and this is important to remember, everyone, regardless of whether or not they had given their life to Yeshua, was required to become part of the state-sponsored church. Christianity was then severed from its root Judaism. And we had people in the church that were not following Yeshua. So what does that tell you happened within that body? Okay, you have believers and you have non-believers, but they have to be a part of that body. It was required by the state. Given how many hundreds of years it has been since Constantine, it's no wonder that we in modern times have so little understanding of what it means when we say that Yeshua was Jewish. And what I hope to do today is to help to give you a simple introductory to what that means. And with that as background, let's go ahead and really delve into that journey now. So, let me start out by saying this first. There is unfortunately no explicit statement I can give you in the Bible that says Yeshua was a Jew and followed Jewish laws and traditions. That statement does not exist in our Bibles. However, when we read our Bibles in their proper context, we see that he did exactly that. Context, as in all things, is the key. So think back to your literature classes, whether in high school or college. When you studied historical playwriters such as Shakespeare, or philosophers such as Plato and Aristotle, who we've talked about in past lessons, your teacher explained the context of their writings, what the culture was at the time, and any other relevant factors so that you could get an accurate understanding of what they were writing about. That explanation is what's missing in our Bibles. And there's a reason. The New Testament, Brit Hadashah, was not written to be a historical book or even to be scripture. Many scholars actually believe that the Gospels were written at the urging of the Gentiles because they wanted to remember everything the disciples were teaching them. The Jewish people had always passed their traditions and learnings down through memorization. Gentiles, not so much so. They more relied on written materials for their teaching. So they wanted writings. Then we have the epistles, the letters. They were written by the disciples to address specific situations in various congregations. And then those letters would be shared with other congregations. And ultimately, the Gospels and those letters found themselves as canon and were put in our Bibles. In both instances, the context is missing from those written records because the documents were addressed to an audience that had the context. They were not put on paper for future generations centuries later. And we need to remember that. The people they were writing to knew the context. They knew Judaism. They knew everything they were talking about. They didn't need that explanation. So our challenge is to try to grasp that context so that we can understand the words and actions that were recorded in Scripture, 
just as those who wit actually witnessed those acts and read the original letters did. One of the most obvious things that obscures the identity of Yeshua's Jewishness is his name. As I mentioned earlier, he was known as Yeshua, which means salvation. As the Bible was translated into other language, so was his name. It ultimately came into English as Jesus with several other iterations between. We see other people throughout the New Testament that have the same name as people in the Old Testament, but their names are different. Miriam is a good example. In the New Testament, we often see it Mary. And here's another good one. Yaakov, often translated as Jacob in our Bibles, but we see a difference here. When we get to the half-brother of Yeshua, we see it translated as James. And there's actually a very simple reason for this. The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew without any Greek influence. Now, it was translated later into the Septuagint, but the original Hebrew had no Greek influence in it. So that's important to remember. The New Testament, on the other hand, was written in Greek. It had a very strong Greek influence. Many of the New Testament names were Hellenized when they were written down. And although it wasn't done for nefarious purposes, it has caused some confusion and it makes it very easy to overlook the fact that these people were indeed Jewish. If their names had been translated directly from Hebrew into English with nothing in between, we would not have that confusion. But in many cases, the names were Hellenized and translated into Latin and in some cases into German, even before they were translated into English. So we wound up with names such as James, John, Mary, and so forth, rather than Jacob, Yochanan, and Miriam. Then, here's a good one you'll all recognize. The artwork that it depicts Yeshua and his disciples. Think back on the various depictions of Yeshua that you have seen over the years. Do they reflect him as a Jewish person? or more of an Anglo-Saxon, or perhaps some other ethnicity. Paintings of the Last Supper is a good example. I think we all here realize that they were actually celebrating Passover. Okay? But da Vinci's painting doesn't reflect the Jewishness of that meal. I'll give you one example out of there. One of the hallmarks of Passover is unleavened bread, matzah, matzah, and more matzah. Yet, Da Vinci's painting, and I know you can't really see it that well, but go look it up online sometime and, and just look at bread. It's leavened, very obviously leavened. So would that have been served at a Passover meal? So that's just one example of what I'm talking about, how the Jewishness has been stripped. And that brings us to the feasts. If you review the list of Adonai's feasts in Leviticus 11, you'll note that they have either been replaced by various Christian holidays or they've been totally ignored. For example, when you look at the spring feast, Passover has been replaced by Good Friday. The Feast of First Fruits by Easter, Shavuot by Pentecost. Not only has the name changed, so has the date for each of these as they are now marked by a secular calendar rather than the biblical calendar. Not only that, the way they are celebrated has also been radically changed. What I've described is a simplistic explanation of how Yeshua's Jewish identity became hidden. We don't have time to go into all the details. 
on the entire process. I'm going to leave that part of it there for now. We're going to move on and talk about some of the things we can see in Scripture that validate his Jewishness. The first confirmation we have of his Jewishness is in the Brit Hadashah, his genealogy, right in the very beginning. He's descended from the tribe of Judah and the line of King David, not to mention many other Jewish men. The men he called as his inner circle, the twelve, all Jewish. His teachings were Jewish, and they were focused on the law of Moses. Also, this is something people tend to not think about and overlook. Remember that Yeshua is God. When he made the decision of when and through whom he would be born, what did he do? He chose to be born into the Jewish people. He made that decision, conscious decision, to be Jewish. So who are we to deny that fact? As a child, we see that Yeshua and his parents observed Passover in Jerusalem. Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 47, tells us that every year, Yeshua's parents went to Yerushalayim for the festival of Pesach. When he was 12 years old, they went up for the festival as custom required. But after the festival was over, when his parents returned, Yeshua remained in Yerushalayim. They didn't realize this. Supposing that he was somewhere in the caravan, they spent a whole day on the road before they began searching for him among their relatives and friends. Yeah, they lost him. Failing to find him, they returned to Yerushalayim to look for him. On the third day, they found him. Three days. Sounds like something else that happened in three days. Sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? But on the third day, they found him. He was sitting in the temple court among the rabbis, not only listening to them, but questioning what they said, something very Jewish. And everyone who heard him was astonished at his insight and his responses. We also see in that passage that he was an avid student of the Torah, excelling in his studies and amazing the teachers at the temple. In other words, he was studying and growing in his knowledge of both the traditions and the laws of Judaism. And that should not come as a surprise because when we understand the culture of the time, that was typical for a young Jewish boy. Like the other Jewish boys of his time, Yeshua would have studied the Torah beginning with Leviticus at the age of five, believe it or not. Then at around age 10, he would have begun learning the oral laws of Judaism. By age 13, he would have become a bar mitzvah and had been legally responsible for keeping the commandments on his own. By age 15, since Yeshua was poor, he would probably have started learning a trade rather than continuing his formal religious education. And actually, we see that within the pages of the Brit Hadashah. We see that he followed in his father's footsteps and became a carpenter. We see a number of passages in the Gospels where Yeshua is referred to as a rabbi. That term rabbi was different in his day than it is in our day. Today, a rabbi functions basically as what we would consider a pastor. They oversee a congregation. They officiate at weddings and funerals and so forth. In Yeshua's time, it was a little different. Rabbis were experts in the law of Moses. They didn't oversee congregations. If you had a question about how to keep the law, you would seek the advice of a rabbi. And because the entire life of a Jewish person was based on the Torah, rabbis were highly respected for their knowledge. 
If you were like me, you probably grew up believing that the fact that Yeshua had all these disciples that followed him around listening to his teachers and trying to become like him, that in and of itself meant that he was special. And while he is, without question, very special and unique, it's because he's the Son of God, not because he had disciples who followed him around, because that was very common in his time. Their intention was to become like their rabbi. That was perfectly normal during his time, and we don't, it's so different today. We don't realize that. His, the disciples of a rabbi would become like their rabbi, then they would go and they would recruit disciples, and then those disciples would become like their rabbi, and that's how all this was passed along. Yeshua was a little different. His disciples followed him to become like him. But it changes when it gets to their disciples. They brought up disciples not to be like them, but to be like Yeshua. And it's the same with us. We're disciples, but we should be like Yeshua, not by whoever was leading us and brought us to faith and discipled us. So now let's look at a few passages in the Gospels where we can see the Jewishness of Yeshua. I want to start out with Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. It's a passage often used to prove, quote-unquote, that Yeshua invalidated the Torah, but it actually tells us just the opposite. Don't think that I have come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to complete. Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth pass away, not so much as a yud or a stroke will pass from the Torah. Not until everything that must happen has happened. So whoever disobeys the least of these mitzvot and teaches others to do so will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys them and so teaches will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness is far greater than that of the Torah teachers and perishim, the, the Pharisees, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Most, tr most translations use the word fulfill rather than complete. But in either event, the meaning of this passage is that Yeshua demonstrated by his life how we are to live out the Torah. Inserting this statement here, where it is inserted in this gospel, is interesting because there was no need for Yeshua to make such a statement at that point in time because he had not yet been accused of invalidating the commandments of the Torah or any other parts of the Hebrew scriptures. In his deity, it's likely that he made this statement at the time he made it because he knew that these accusations would be made soon. And he wanted everyone to understand ahead of time that he fulfilled every command that the Father had given to his people. If you continue reading in that chapter, and we won't will not take the time to do that right now, but start with verse 17 and go through the remainder of that chapter. And you'll see that it's very clear that not a single word of the Torah will pass away as long as heaven and earth continue and until everything God has ordained has occurred. Neither of those have occurred, so the Torah still stands. And something even additionally interesting is that if you continue through that chapter, as I said, instead of invalidating the laws, we see that Yeshua goes on to actually strengthen those laws. Okay? It's a lengthy passage. Like I said, we're not going to read it. But starting verse 21 of Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, 
What we see is that Yeshua told the people that not only should they avoid adultery, but that they should not lust in their heart over another person. You should not tell, he's not, not, not what you find is he also told people not to murder, but also not to hate. So it goes on and on. Just read it. Obedience to Torah goes hand in hand with his life as a Jewish person. And he affirmed that in this passage. And he also affirmed the law of Moses. Ah, here's one we don't think about a lot. His dress. We often overlook the fact that he dressed as a Jewish man of his time. It's almost certain that he donned tefillin. And we also have several verses in the Gospels that inform us that he did indeed wear tzitzit, the little, hem, the little fringes you see on the hem of his garment here. Matthew chapter 9, verse 20 tells us about a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years. She approached Yeshua from behind and touched the hem of his garment, his tzitzit. Again, proving that he dressed as a Jewish man. Matthew chapter 14, verse 36, tells us that the people of Gennesaret, after they recognized him, begged to touch the fringe of his cloak, again, his tzitzit, and that all who touched it were completely healed. Yeshua also attended synagogue, a very Jewish thing to do. He even taught in the synagogues. Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Yeshua returned to the Galil in the power of the Spirit, and reports about him spread throughout the countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone respected him. Now when he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, on Shabbat, he went to the synagogue as usual. And some translations say, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. As we can see, he clearly lived his life as a Jewish man. We're often taught that Yeshua disagreed with the teachings of the Pharisees and that they were hypocrites. But if we look closer, we see a very different picture. Matthew chapter 22, verses 2 and 3 tell us about a command from Yeshua that his disciples should obey even the stringencies of the scribes and the Pharisees who sat on the Sanhedrin which was the highest human religious authority in Judaism at that time. The Torah teachers and the parashim, he said, sit in the seat of Moshe. So whatever they tell you, take care to do it. But don't do what they do, because they talk but don't act. In other words, he recognized and upheld the truth of their teachings. And he told his disciples to keep those teachings, rather than teaching against what they taught. The problem is that some of the Pharisees had become pious and they didn't always walk the talk, as we would say. Another one, John chapter 4, verse 22. This passage provides us with a head-on acknowledgement of Yeshua's Jewishness. It says, you people don't worship, or excuse me, you people don't know what you are worshiping. We worship what we know because salvation comes from the Jews. Now remember, what was his name? Yeshua. What does Yeshua mean? Salvation. So Yeshua comes from the Jews. Can't get much clearer than that. <laughs> I reference what is typically referred to as the Last Supper earlier, and most believers unfortunately do not realize it was actually Passover Seder. 
think everyone here does, but I want to focus on one of the events of that night and prove that claim that it was indeed a Seder. Remember, this occurred just prior to Yeshua's arrest, and that arrest would lead to his crucifixion, so it was at the very end of his life. What he did that night was very Jewish. So if he had turned, this is at the end of his life, if he had turned away from Judaism, as so many people proclaim, he, we would not expect him to see what he did that night. The story is retold in Luke chapter 22, if you want to go back and look at it later. But as you know, the Jewish Seder has four cups. Each one has a different name and meaning. Although opinions vary as to what certain cups actually symbolize, most agree that the first cup is actually the Kaddush, which means sanctification. With this cup, the Passover Seder begins. The second cup is called the cup of plagues. Remember dipping your finger in it and calling out the lice and so forth with all the ten plagues. The third cup is referred to as either the cup of redemption, some people call it the cup of blessing. The fourth cup is often called Hallel, which means praise, although some traditions call it the cup of acceptance, while still others call it the cup of Elijah. So as we see, these last two have some different names. And it's the third cup that I want to focus on, because this one is typically taken after the meal, and it's referred to by Yeshua as the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. If you go out to the Jews for Jesus website, what you'll find out is they point out that Yeshua draws on something from Jewish tradition to provide insights not previously understood by the people at that time. By calling the cup the new covenant in my blood, he makes a direct reference to the promise of Jeremiah 31, where God had declared that he would make a new covenant because the previous covenant had become broken, and that's Jeremiah 31, verse 32. To violate a covenant agreement with God would surely incur his wrath and judgment. Terrible cup. But instead, God promised a new covenant of grace and salvation. Yeshua declared that this covenant would be poured from that third cup. The cup of salvation, the cup of Yeshua in his blood. The cup of redemption stood for more than the Hebrews escaped from Egypt. It stood for the plan and purpose of God for all the ages. Judgment and salvation, wrath and redemption were all brought together in the mystery of that one cup as explained by the Messiah in that upper room that night. He was not speaking of that cup merely in symbolic terms. He was actually describing events that would soon occur in his own life and later that evening in the Garden of Gethsemane, he cried out to his father in anguished prayer, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. How many of you have ever connected that plea there, take this cup away from me with the third cup of the Seder? That's what he was doing. So the cup he willingly took to bring salvation to us it's something that is part of all Passover seders and therefore very, very Jewish. Consider this. Yeshua was proclaimed to be the king of the Jews at both his birth in Matthew chapter 2 and later at his crucifixion in John chapter 19. There's also a third occasion in the scripture 
where he is proclaimed the king of the Jews. And this comes from his own admission to Pilate in Luke chapter 23, verse 3. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he, Yeshua, answered him, the words are yours. Other translations record Yeshua's words as, it is as you say or even you have said it. In other words, Yeshua confirmed that he was indeed the king of the Jews. So clearly he was born a Jew, he lived as, as a Jew, and he died as a Jew. But guess what? There's more. In the book of Revelation, we see two passages that indicate that even in heaven, he is still known as a Jew. The first one is Revelation 5, 5. One of the elders said to me, don't cry, look, the lion of the tribe of Yehuda, the root of David, has won the right to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then Revelation 22:16, he reminds us that he is still part of the Jewish people. This is at the end of Revelation, okay? So, I, Yeshua, have sent my angel to give you testimony for the messianic communities. I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Okay? <laughs> then, as Yeshua wrapped up his ministry and he prepared to return to his father while he was still on earth, this is after his death and his resurrection. He leaves these instructions for his disciples in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. He says, therefore, go and make people from all nations into Talmudim, immersing them into the reality of the Father, the Son, and the Ruach HaKadosh, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, yes, even until the end of the age. He also gave his disciples the power to decide what we, as followers of Yeshua, would be allowed to do and what would be forbidden. And we see that in Matthew 18, 18. He says, yes, I tell you people that whatever you prohibit on earth will be prohibited in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. The apostles ruled that the Gentiles would remain Gentiles and not become Jewish but that Yeshua's disciples would help guide us into obedience, us Gentiles, into obedience by making decisions about how we were to be engrafted into the body of Messiah. Acts chapter 15, which I mentioned earlier, is an excellent example of that process in action, as are the epistles from apostles such as Paul, Peter, and John. And we don't have time this morning, we're running out of time, to go into details on those obligations, and they're beyond the scope of this teaching, to be honest. But we need to realize that the obedience to our God is not optional. It's mandatory. Something else I want to point out before I close is the story of Yeshua's ascension, as told in the book of Luke. And we see in chapter 24, verses 50 and 51, it tells us that he led them out toward Beit Anah, Bethany. Then, raising his hands, he said a bracha, a blessing, over them. And as he was blessing them, he withdrew from them and was carried into heaven. Now, notice that he raised his hands and he pronounced a blessing over him, over their people. As a Jewish man, what do you think he said? Anybody have any ideas? 
I would venture to guess it was the ironic benediction, a very Jewish thing to do. So think about this. He's standing there. He's, he's blessing them. Okay? They're, their head's down like this, and all at once they see his feet raising up off the ground. Can you imagine how amazed they must have been? And then watch him go up into the clouds. Now with that, I'm going to rest my case for today. Yeshua was a Jew during his lifetime. He continues to be a Jew, and he expects his followers to obey his father's commands. And he will forevermore be a Jew. We saw that in the book of Revelation. Okay? When he says he um, the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, that also applies to his Jewishness. There's no reason to carve that out and say that does not apply. And as I said earlier, I'm not trying to convince you that you need to become a Jewish person. We are to remain as we were called. But what I am trying to communicate is that in order to fully understand the scriptures, we have to acknowledge the fact that Yeshua was Jewish. And we have to interpret the scriptures in light of that fact. When we do, the scriptures become alive and our relationship with the Lord will become very real and vibrant. And while the quality of our relationship with the Lord is extremely important, guess what? There is an even more important reason to acknowledge the Jewishness of Yeshua and portray him for who he truly is. And that's what we will be talking about next week. So with that, let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for revealing yourself to us through your scriptures. We ask, Father, that you would take the words in that precious holy book that you've preserved throughout all the ages for us. Let them become real to us. Let them truly transform us, that we would be true, true disciples of Messiah Yeshua. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen.